Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, listeners, welcome to this bonus festive seasonal episode of Politics on the Couch. We call it, start as a bonus episode, which sort of suggests you're getting something more than you would ordinarily get, whereas actually you're getting something less than you would ordinarily get um, because we don't have a guest. We just have me and producer Phil in Hove. Uh, hi, Phil. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Ryan. I'd like to think the whole series has been one big bonus. It's new, it's free. Uh, what's not to like about it? That's true. Yeah, so exactly. So it's all, this is a double bonus episode. Um, but nonetheless, we're going to just look back a little bit on what's happened in 2020. We've talked a lot about Brexit this year, inevitably, even though I said at the start I was going to try to not talk too much about Brexit. That was pretty naive. Um, and it would be good to think a little bit about what's happening next year and where this is all going to go. And I don't just mean Brexit and obviously the pandemic. Uh, and as much psychology as we can, with the usual caveat that neither of us is in any way qualified psychologists. And so no one please make any emotional or psychological investment decisions based on anything you hear in this podcast. We also put out a request for any questions and discussion topics uh, on Twitter. And um, we got a few, didn't we, Phil? Do you want to, is there anything, what do you want to start with? Actually, you're in control. You're in a driving seat, Phil. So you just, you ask me, say something to me and I'll respond in a podcasty kind of way. What would you prefer? A question from me or from the listeners? Choice is yours. <laughs> I can't tell what the correct answer is there, Phil, because you probably have a preference. Uh, no, let's go audience first. Audience, yeah, that, that, that would only be fair and just because they're our audience and we love them and without them, there wouldn't be, literally wouldn't be a podcast. Uh, so, and then you can just follow up anything they say because, and with uh, questions of your own, because you can abuse your position as the chair. I'm not going to abuse my position at all here. I'm going to get stuck in with the very first question which is from Matthew. And I've chosen it because it covers so many different elements of, um, of what happened in 2020 and what's to come in 2021 and gives you an opportunity to have to really get your teeth stuck into it. So here we go. I've been pondering what 2020 has done to the British public's conception of the state and would be interested in your thoughts too. We were promised, from some quarters at least, that Brexit would lead to a transformation of the British state. 
but COVID appears to have done something to how we view the state. We seem to be happy to grant it extraordinary powers, while at the same time bemoaning its inability to meet the basic levels of competency. So what, if anything, has changed, or even just been revealed this year, and what might it mean for any post-Brexit, post-pandemic plans to overhaul the British state? I've been enjoying your podcast. Take care, Matthew. Oh, well, thank you. Um, that's a really good, interesting, long, complicated question. Um, and it does cover everything, doesn't it? Right. So, yes, I think one of the really interesting things about, first, the Brexit aspect of it is that originally, as conceived, the sort of Eurosceptic ideological Brexit notion was all about escaping Brussels' grip because the regulatory uh, burden was suffocating growth and enterprise. And it was all about this kind of sclerotic bureaucratic state that was terribly continental. And we would be this free flowing uh, Atlanticist buccaneering on the high seas of free trade country, which was a very small state libertarian view of what Britain should be very influenced by American conservatism. And so Brexit only sort of existed to begin with because that notion of, of, of stripping back the powers of the state was so central to a conservative and therefore a Eurosceptic worldview. The interesting thing is that when in 2016, when they looked at the demographics and the cultural outline, the contours of who had actually voted for Brexit, you found a lot of it was people who weren't traditional conservatives. They certainly weren't libertarian, high Tory conservatives. And I mean, some of them were. I mean, that gets overstated. I mean, a lot of classic sort of red trouser Tories voted for Brexit. But you have places like Sunderland and the areas that later famously became known as the sort of red wall of former Labour strongholds that were very strongly Brexiteer. And there's no sense that those people wanted Brexit or ended up endorsing Boris Johnson in 2019 because they bought into some Jacob Rees-Mogg style view of what, of a small state uh, Eurosceptic vision. And actually almost the opposite is true, that the sense they were feeling very insecure, that globalization had hollowed out their sense of security and belonging in the country that they felt disoriented and actually it contained in a lot of that frustration and anger that expressed itself in the vote for Brexit was actually a demand implicit that government do a lot more uh, and it protect their jobs it support their industries it rebuild their towns and so but Theresa May and then Boris Johnson both sort of understood that that strategically the new conservative coalition the people who, who certainly who supported Boris Johnson in 2019 were really not small state people. All this talk of levelling up that you hear around is basically a euphemism for putting government back into, uh, quite an activist government back into British politics, which cuts across, as I say, a lot of the traditional, uh, well, at least post-Thatcher traditional Tory view of what politics is about. And that's a tension that's really baked into the Johnson project, and it's not going anywhere. And that's definitely going to express itself a lot more in the coming years. And then on top of that, so that's a sort of a structural tension that has been introduced into conservatism. You've basically got a kind of a red wall conservatism that says, right, we've basically got to give people what they want, and only the state can really mobilise to do that. And then you've got traditional Reese moggy Thatcher, turbo Thatcherism, which essentially thinks anything government does is a sort of a slippery slope towards Bolshevism and tyranny. And, you know, you should basically have no taxes uh, and government is just always getting in the way. That's a terrible caricature, but you, you understand what I mean. 
then along comes COVID, immediately creates this huge demand for state capacity. And, you know, you, you see it now in delivering the vaccine, when they erected the Nightingale hospitals and they had to bring the army in. You know, there's no way you can deal with a global pandemic or, or national epidemic without, on, on this scale without really mobilising the full force of the state. And that also has been a tension in the Johnson government. You saw how they ended up trying to use outsourcing to deliver a test and trace, and they, they sort of fragmented the system and it wasn't really joined up. They didn't consult local government. They got into arguments with Andy Byrne in Manchester because I think he was probably right on this, that there was just a, a ready infrastructure of, of public health administration that could have just done that stuff a lot better. And the evidence is that it was already doing it a lot better. And overlaid on that, you have the sense that in since 2010, you'd had progressive cuts, you know, austerity, stripping out the, the capacity of the state in many areas, particularly the uh, Department of Communities, local government lost over a quarter of its budget. So local government was really hollowed out. And again, that's almost certainly one of the big reasons why the UK's pandemic response has been a bit shabby and dysfunctional in many respects. Again, demonstrating ultimately need a bit of government. And then the final piece of the, this jigsaw is in order to do the regulations that you need to control people's behaviour, you're implementing quasi-totalitarian regulations. The UK government telling people to stay at home, the law, the emergency bill that was passed uh, providing for things, for example, turning ice rinks into emergency morgues. I mean, these are the most extraordinary things to have on a statute book. They're not totalitarian to the extent that written in are sunset clauses that mean they expire. And also, I think well, one of the few things on which Boris Johnson is sincere is the fact that he genuinely doesn't like doing that sort of thing. He is quite libertarian in his instincts, he doesn't actually want to be a an all-controlling Stalinist despot. I mean, he likes power and he likes and he's can be a sort of narcissist and a bit megalomaniac in that sense, but he doesn't, he's not an actual fascist in terms of wanting to control everyone's lives all the time. So you've got these the sort of three tensions going on in the way that the British government is trying to manage its relationship with the state. So that's just a way of setting up the question that in a less efficient way than it was asked. But at some stage in 2021, those tensions are going to turn into political conflict for the government because they just pull in policy terms. They pull in really different directions. Uh, and I think the a crucial thing to remember here is that, that where we started, which was that sort of pseudo-libertarian conservative view, small state, small government, low tax. Apart from the taxes bit, it's not actually a very popular mainstream position in the UK. I mean, no one likes paying taxes uh, or a lot of people don't like paying taxes or they think that other people should pay taxes and not them. But the idea that small state is intrinsically good on the ideological grounds that government gets in the way of growth and enterprise is actually a pretty niche view. I remember a focus group run by Lord Ashcroft, actually, as part of his Tory strategy uh, project, where they talked about shrinking the state uh, in this was in the Cameron era in with a group of voters. I think it was in the southwest somewhere. And people had no idea what that meant. Someone said, what, like literally like cutting off Cornwall. They didn't really understand what you know, what that, what's that even involved shrinking the state. It's a meaningless, it's a very think tanky ideological concept. Uh, I should probably stop talking now if we're going to get through any more questions. But so the short answer is there are now, I think, irresolvable tensions in the way this government has been forced to govern as opposed to the way a lot of the Conservative Party instinctively, intuitively wants to govern. And that is going to start expressing itself, I think, quite soon in division uh, and discomfort in the cabinet and probably 
focused on the issue of tax because ultimately when you're talking about government capacity in this country because we've got such a diminished tax base and quite low taxes that really quickly gets to a question of whether or not you're raising taxes i'll stop definitely stop talking there that was that was like a 10 minute answer but it was a, it was a long question i mean it was a good question is there an additional element of this question that we should also look at too which is that because of the pandemic government expenditure I think, according to my notes here, that it's the highest level since the early 1960s. It's over 100% of GDP. And in July earlier this year, the public sector net debt exceeded $2 trillion for the first time. I guess what I'm asking here is, is there not going to come a point sometime soon where, where the money taps will be turned off? I'm not an economist, but I defer to people who have answered this question to me and for me before and the short answer is not immediately like there seems to be pretty strong consensus that you've got with interest rates so low at the moment borrowing so cheap it would be a terrible idea right now to try and scrape back some of that money when you really need to actually just keep the economy on life support and keep people in jobs you do need to carry on borrowing so the question isn't um should we now start trying to save again and go back to austerity very very few people seem to think that is something we should be doing now the the only question really is at what point do you think you can safely start thinking about the pivot um and because one day you will need to raise more money and the issue here as i understand it is more about the tax base and and where revenue is coming from in the long term because that is a, a harder thing for the uk to do don't because the way the big ways to raise money are the the big taxes which is sort of vat national insurance basic rate of income tax and it is so toxic to raise those uh, and the conservatives have a manifesto pledge not to uh, and what it really comes down to in political terms is can you push that decision can you defer that so long that you could even do it after the next election or will those fiscal chickens start coming home to roost this side of an election? And will Rishi Sunak have to do a really counter-cyclical in political terms budget before polling day and actually do a really nasty I'm raising all your taxes budget, which he sort of either that's a, a problem for Sunak because intuitively he is quite a hawk fiscally and will be itching to try and get some revenue back. Uh, he's also politically pretty savvy and will recognise it would much traditionally the time to do that is the first budget after a general election not the last one before an election and in terms of what the market tolerance is for the uk just going deeper and deeper into debt and, and ramping up a really big deficit uh it seems to go on and on and it, they're perfectly credible actually quite conservative you know economic terms people who think you could extend this for quite a long time obviously a lot of people on the left think sure you know you can borrow as much as you want you know and are more relaxed about raising taxes anyway so that's less of an issue on the left the crucial variable in this that could really throw a huge spanner in the works is if for some reason inflation really comes back and there's pressure on interest rates to go up then this huge debt burden that we're amassing suddenly stops being this quiet sleeping giant in the corner and turns into this more aggressive looking snarling beast that you have to attend to and i think that is something that will keep treasury people awake at night because it's the job of the treasury 
to not be thinking about the political cycle, but to be looking ahead and thinking what could happen in the next few years that could really mess us up badly. And the answer to that is inflation and interest rates having to go up. So just as a sort of a, a quick follow up to that, when do you think the, the government will be able to make good on those on the promises of improving the lives of people in those, um, you know, those areas like Wakefield or Workington or Bolsover? The interesting thing about that is when you talk to Tory MPs about this stuff and MPs in those areas, in those red wall seats, they're very clear that the most important thing is a, a visual, clearly accessible sign that government cares. So it's important. And Rishi Sunak made this pretty explicit when he in one of his financial statements in the Commons that he, he said it's important that things be seen to be done. So and uh, a lot of policymakers would say that's a terrible metric to use. You know, you don't want to build a shiny new bridge to nowhere just to say, look, behold, we built you a bridge. But there is a very strong sense in the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party is this has such a powerful instinct for retaining power. Uh, it, it's sort of it's so such a well evolved animal for for the, the raw politics of winning when it's sort of at its best, uh, in inverted commas, at its most effective, rather, uh, that they they seem to be have zeroed in quite clearly on the idea of what can you deliver that will make people feel that Boris Johnson has more or less turned up in their town with a pail of paint and given the place a nice new coat and made it look nice and shown that he cares. Now, whether or not people actually respond to that and say, oh, bless Boris, he came and he gave the place a lick of paint, uh, I'll vote for him again is a different issue. But I think given that they are thinking about it in quite cosmetic terms, they can do quite cosmetic things relatively quickly. What they can't do is rehabilitate the industries that gave people the security and the sense of status that they had a generation ago. You know, he can't re-erect the cultural and social hierarchies that operated around coal mining industries in the 40s, 50s and 60s you know, or 70s. I think it's going to be very difficult to get to 2024, which is when you're going to have probably in all likelihood another general election uh, and places that have felt really hollowed out and abandoned or the, or the cliche is left behind. And they have those places in a condition where people are looking around going, oh, do you remember what a dump this place used to be? And now it's just really thriving and feeling vibrant. And Brexit doesn't help that. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty well documented that a lot of those places, you know, if you've got small to medium sized manufacturing, which are some of the better quality jobs in, in parts of the Midlands, integrated in the single market supply chains, exporting to the European Union, Brexit's it might not totally destroy those jobs, but it's definitely going to make it harder. It's going to limit investment. So the, unsurprisingly, but slightly depressingly, the government has just is in the process right now of doing something that very obviously makes the task of fulfilling its rhetoric on levelling up way harder. And my concern for the next few years is that no matter what the intention of government is to pivot now, and I think it is Boris Johnson's intention to switch towards a slightly more when he was mayor of London, cosy, liberal Boris Johnson, as opposed to the angry nationalist Donald Trump, ultra Brexiteer Boris Johnson. I think however much he thinks he might want to do that, 
when he realizes that he cannot deliver economically for his new voters, he will be forced to rely on a much more nativist nationalistic project, essentially stoking people's anger and presenting himself as the champion of that against whatever it is, a, another confected endless row with Brussels or liberal cosmopolitan Remainers or some kind of culture war element that he will be forced to mobilize to get political traction because he actually won't be able to, he won't have the resources or the ideas or the patience to implement the kind of economic program that that would actually transform people's lives. And on top of that, you've got a chancellor who I think probably doesn't deep down get the intellectual conceptual shift away from that more traditional Thatcherite conservative model. I think Rishi Sunak entirely understands and understood during the pandemic the need to just abandon all sorts of conservative dogmas and shibboleths and just spend like crazy to try and keep the economy going. But does he actually believe that the world has turned in a way that makes the small state, small government, low tax, uh, Thatcher, Reagan consensus model of economics and statecraft and politics obsolete? Does he actually reject that and think we're now in a new phase, which involves us tilt slightly towards a more social democratic type of uh, political economy? No, I don't think he does. I don't think he gets that at all. Is there ever going to be this moment uh, for the Chancellor where he can say that, okay, we can be a bit more fiscally prudent now because things are a bit, you know, because things are back to normal. It's a, it's a real tell with Boris Johnson in particular, how often he says normal and going back to normal. And first it was going to be normal. Uh, you know, they tried to get us back to normal over the summer uh, with, you know, and, and eat out to help out was a clear attempt to accelerate normality. <laughs> then it was by Christmas. Now we're talking about Easter. I sense that the for Boris Johnson normal means an environment in which all of his habits and rhetorical devices that are ultimately quite lazy and not thought through with any rigor with regard to the rest of the world and really cultivated in the in the or sort of heated in the crucible of of classic Tory ambition work and those things still operate uh, and that's what he means by normal. He means normal is a world where everyone just likes me and I don't have to work too hard to be popular. And that's definitely not coming back. So, yeah, I think he's. He, I, if I were advising him, I would say stop saying normal. Let's say we're not going back, and but we are going to, where we're going is going to end up being better, but it's going to be hard. And if I were advising Keir Starmer, I would also advise him to, tell the prime minister to stop saying normal your alternative is not very catchy it needs uh three words that's why i'm a, a podcaster who runs over time limits and not a politician who comes up with snappy three word slogans so we're recording uh new year's eve and yesterday the 30th of december there was the brexit debate the final well i say the final brexit debate i'm sure there'll be lots of other debates about brexit whether they'll be called the brexit debates another matter but there was that debate and um a certain finality to it so first question for me really is like how do you feel about it now having spent so much of your life writing about it for the last five years and uh, also quite a few people have uh, tweeted or emailed in kind of wondering what you think about Starmer's position on the voted parliament um, he whipped the Labour MPs to vote for the deal um, and I suppose there were other options available and uh, people would like to know why could uh, people have been given the option to abstain 
wouldn't that have been perhaps a more diplomatic approach to keep um, more MPs on side? Oh, yeah, technically there was the option even of voting against, but that would have been problematic because notionally then you're supporting the idea of no deal, which is something Labour has opposed for very good reasons. I have changed my mind on this so many times and I find it very difficult. And I think the reasons I find it difficult are actually quite revealing, not necessarily about me, but about politics, because you asked how I felt generally, I think, about this stuff. And I hate Brexit and I still think it's a terrible idea and I wish it wasn't happening. So there is, as it were, within me, a tension between a personal judgment about something that causes me a degree of distress that I want to reject very firmly. And therefore, if I were a backbench MP in the House of Commons and in the context of knowing that Boris Johnson has a majority and can get his deal through, I would gladly vote against it and say, I hate this. I don't want it. It's nothing to do with me. But that's would still be a symbolic gesture because you're not actually risking no deal. So there are all sorts of counterfactuals that we don't have. If it was if there was a smaller Johnson majority and it was really going down to the wire, then you would have to, you'd be forced to to support a deal over no deal. So which raises the question, is the Labour, is the opposition position in this about signalling something bigger than whether or not the legislation should pass? Uh, Is it an expression of a position on Brexit? Or is it literally about whether or not you think this particular piece of law has to be on the statute book? Uh, And again, looking at it from Keir Starmer's point of view, you could interpret it a number of different ways. He ultimately he does need people who supported Brexit to vote for him one day. There isn't a route, I don't think, to power for Labour in being a party of still remain. Uh, we haven't given up yet, and one day even rejoin. You know, that's the Lib Dems, right? That is not the la- that's not a a credible, electorally speaking, Labour position. And you can argue, well, ultimately, who cares? By twenty twenty four, this won't be the issue, and it's such a betrayal of the principle of whether or not Labour should be a pro-European party or whether you should be going along with Boris Johnson's shabby tricks uh, that you should just be opposing because that's what the opposition is supposed to do. And it's a terrible deal. So why should you sort of dip your hands in the blood? As the expression is. And I changed my mind on this about four times in the run up. I think there is a pretty strong case for saying uh, abstention just looks terrible. You can configure it by saying, well, I this process has been so appalling and government's been cut out. Sorry, parliament has been cut out from it and we haven't had time to scrutinise it. The sort of I don't recognise this kangaroo court approach and just refusing to participate. I don't think that really works in practice. I mean, once we'd had the result and I looked at the abstentions, I did think, yeah, the abstention doesn't really mean very much in this context. Uh, it's just sort of saying, I don't really know what to think. And no matter how complex the motive is behind that, I don't think that's projected very well. I also was quite persuaded by Keir Starmer's argument, not the one he made in the chamber, uh, but the one that he made when first issuing his statement saying, I'm going to whip Labour MPs behind this bill. because And it was something I hadn't really thought of before. What he said uh, in kind was this is going to be the framework for the future relationship between britain and the european union and it's it's their deal too so the eu and brussels want this and need this deal to work as does in fact the uk so whatever you think of it 
and whatever your future aspirations for a relationship with the European Union, this is the concrete floor up from which you will be building that relationship. And someone who aspires to be prime minister one day and lead a Labour government will be working from those foundations. And they might be building up from it, but they're not realistically going to take a drill and tear it up and break up the concrete and try and dig underneath it. So the responsible thing to do for an aspiring government is to say, fine, OK, you've built this thing. We have to get it down and let the concrete set. But we build, build something completely different on it. And actually, the pro-European position for a responsible leader of the opposition in that context is to signal to the rest of the world. Yeah, sure. Britain is now going to make this work. And so that's a very different position for someone for Keir Starmer, who thinks I want to be prime minister and I want to win a general election, than it is for Raphael Baer, who really, really hates Brexit. Um, so the short answer to your question is, if I had been in the chamber with the parliamentary arithmetic as it is now, I would have voted against the deal. If I were Keir Starmer, I might well have done what he's done. But it's not easy. And I think ultimately, what disappointed me most about about the debate yesterday isn't really the outcome, which was a given, but there was no majesty to the occasion in the sense that quite often in the chamber of the House of Commons, someone stands up and just says something and you think that is what Parliament is for, right? Someone delivers the speech. You don't necessarily know who it's going to be. Often it's some backbencher or former chancellor or former prime minister or something, but someone just stands up and, and does the thing, clears their throat and delivers the lines that you think thank i'm thankful that someone bloody well said it and it would have been really nice if Keir Starmer had found a way to do that he didn't obviously the prime minister wasn't going to do it no one did it the closest you got was smp mp just referring to it as a cup of excrement cup of excrement that i refuse to drink which is not the sort of magisterial parliamentary approach but at least it's it was it had some cut through but that's not much. I, I really wanted some cathartic moment. I wanted Hillary Benn to stand up and just knock it out of the park, uh, to hoof it in from 40 yards out, just saying this is a terrible thing we're doing as a country. And it's with a really heavy heart that I accept that we've we've crossed the Rubicon and now we have to carry on. But let no one look on this moment as a point of honour or greatness in the British national story because it is our shame and you know, you know what I mean that stuff someone could have done that and I'm a bit sad that no one did yes I was uh, particularly drawn to the steaming mug of excrement simile probably be my abiding memory of that um, debate before the final vote um, and it was a particularly amazing feat given all the debates over the years to on the final day come up with a new simile but more importantly, why is it that uh, none of the uh, Labour grandees were able to um, do a storming piece of rhetoric that the occasion uh, perhaps deserved? I think two elements. I think fatigue, like the rest of us, everyone's just tired. Everyone's just tired and COVID and, and you know, virtual. There weren't that many people in the chamber. It's not the same, the theatre of it. Uh, and also, I think a lot of the people who are really good at that stuff want to support Keir Starmer. And, you know, you... Previously, the, you forget that there was a quite long period where some of the more talented and effective people on the Labour benches just didn't recognise the authority or the, even the care about the judgment or opinion of the leader of the Labour Party. So there was a party within the party. You know, you can argue the rights and wrongs of their behaviour during that period, but they just didn't care what Jeremy Corbyn thought. And they didn't like him. And they didn't think he was good. So 
they wouldn't have minded and would have been quite glad to stand up and just say, I'm stating my position here and it's going to overshadow what the, my leader does and it will be seen as an attack on him and I don't care. That's, in fact, the point. But they were not going to do that to Keir Starmer because they actually want him to win. An obvious thing to sort of ask about then is what happens to the Remain movement now and the Labour Party? Um, it's obviously been a big point of conflict um, in the Tory party for a number of years now. And, and you know, could, could the same thing happen with the Labour Party? It, you know, could they almost implode over this issue? I mean, it seems like the Tory party now have like, you know, have lanced that boil, so to speak. Uh, what are your thoughts there? There are two questions there, I think, which are both interesting. One is, does this now finally put to rest Tory divisions over Europe? And the other is, is it okay now to start the campaign to rejoin? Uh, and the, that second one is is sort of contains the issue for for Labour in the future. In terms of the Tory battle over Europe, clearly it's it's not going to be as toxic as it's been for the last four or five years. But actually, it hasn't even in 2019, 2020, it wasn't all that bad in terms of the underlying principle of the thing. It was very much in the minutiae of what the deal would be. Once Boris Johnson had won, there wasn't really much to argue over, except the slight anxiety that there would be a sellout sufficient to stoke another UKIP kind of uh, backlash. And it is a very hard Brexit and it's quite hard. There will be things that people like Bill Cash and you know, John Redwood abstained on a deal. There will be things that people can latch onto uh, and complain about because ultimately we are locked into an endless round of negotiation with the EU filling in the gaps in the deal and working out practical things. So there will always be something for John Redwood to get really angry about. But I think that is that sort of anger will have no political purchase for most people. There aren't there isn't a large group of people who in 2018, 2019 had voted for this thing and it wasn't happening and they were angry. And ultimately the source of that anger was the sense they weren't being listened to, that democracy wasn't being honoured and that a bunch of, for want of a better word, liberal elite metropolitan Remainers were taking the piss out of them and not just doing what they'd been told to do. Now, whether or not that is a fair interpretation of what was happening is a different issue, but they were really angry about that. And that pool of anger was an enormously powerful political resource for which Boris Johnson mobilised and he mobilised on the basis that we'd get this out of the way, not on the basis that we would have a free trade agreement consisting of the one that we've now got at all. Those are two totally separate things. So the thing that John Redwood will be angry about, which is the terms of the FTA, are not in any way meaningfully connected to what gave Boris Johnson his majority at the end of 2019. And therefore, Tory Eurosceptic fundamentalist anger is going to be marginal. I do think, however, that that spirit of endless perpetual rebellion, the kind of new Tory Bolshevism, which is about just smashing everything up and not listening to leaders and being constantly rebellious, is a new kind of trait in conservatism, a, a, a breakdown in Tory discipline that is has leapt out of the Europe issue and will infect the body of the Conservative Party in other ways. And you even saw it on COVID regulations. There was something about the way the Tory party was so quick to rebel on, on COVID regulations that made me think, OK, this is a new political energy. It's like the law of, I can't remember if it's the first or the second law of thermodynamics, that you, you just can't destroy energy. It just goes from one place to another. So all that Eurosceptic, fizzing, rebellious energy won't just vanish. 
it'll go somewhere else. So the Conservative Party is still going to be divided and a lot of the fault lines will bear the scars of the European issue, but it won't be over the European issue. But because we will be in this perpetual negotiation and there's so much more to fill in and even baked into the agreement are clauses that say you have to review it every five years. It's feasible that in the next general election, there will be an element of debate about what you do next. And there will might at that stage be people agitating for Labour to say, well, we'll use this renegotiation to get a better deal. If you go back to before 2015, Britain's relationship with the European Union was not a salient issue for most people. I mean, immigration was, which was very closely related to Britain's relationship with the European Union, but at a bit of a tangent. But the idea that people were really concerned or that would ever really vote on the basis of the trading terms of the relationship, that, that was something that you know, to their it was an extraordinary achievement that the Eurosceptics managed to ramp that up into the number one issue for the entire country for four years. Uh, and you know, congratulations to them for having done that in a sort of tediously sinister and unpleasant way that I despise. Um, but it, I don't think we can sustain it at that pitch. So you go back to you know, where we'll end up will be much more as it was in the you know, 2010, 11, 12, where a small number of people are obsessed about this stuff. And the other very important thing then in terms of what Labour can or should do, the appetite for let's unpick that, let's go back and refight all those battles because we want to rejoin. That's a very, very steep mountain. For And there's no, there's sort of all the different faces of it are steep. It's like the Matterhorn. It's just got every face is really, really steep because you've got to persuade a lot of voters that that's a really good idea. Like, remember how much fun it was when we all hated each other over Brexit? And everyone was shouting and the whole country was in paralysis. Let's do that again. So that's a, that's a big ask. Um, there's a whole Scotland chapter to this, but which we should probably talk about, but maybe that's another whole podcast. And, and, but uh, you've got the issue that the European Union is not going to want a super divided Britain turning around and going, remember all that stuff that you went through with us about how like we were leaving? Well, guess what? We want to rejoin. If they don't, they, they, this is their deal too, right? This solves the problem for them. This might be a good point whether you've got any uh, relationship analogies that you might want to bring out now and use for the final time. Well, <laughs> now that you mentioned it, but it's true, it is. The, the EU doesn't want to be the ex-girlfriend who's agreed to just be friends now, who gets the drunken phone call from a new Remain government Britain going, I really love you. I never stop loving you. Can we maybe get back together? It's like, well, no, because when you're sober or when you've got, and, you know, you, you change your mind again, then we're just going to go through all that stuff again. We had a breakup and it's done and we've got the decree. Absolutely, It's not even a breakup, it's a divorce. Uh, and yeah, who, I mean, apart from Liz Taylor, who m literally remarries their, but anyway, let's not pursue that analogy too far. There's one more very important thing to say in, in relation to this. So another, the final thing I want to say about this, because man, look how long we've been going already. Quite an important lesson from Switzerland on this. So Switzerland, it was pretty closely, you know, fourth thing in terms of and Norway a little bit the same but Switzerland more in terms of whether or not how closely integrated they should be into EU structures and whether or not they should be in the EEA and various things and because it's little Switzerland and it's surrounded by the EU they the negotiations never go terribly well for Switzerland right the EU basically gets to dictate terms and each time they renegotiate it it's a massive pain in the ass and that has not increased pro-Europeanism or sort of, as it were, the Remain equivalent in Swiss public opinion. It's kind of done the opposite because every time you have one of these negotiations, the one we've just had demonstrates 
how basically the EU gets to dictate terms. So every time these issues come up, however on the periphery of politics they are, the story is basically going to be Britain wants this thing, the EU won't give it to us, that's not fair, we're really angry, we kick up a fuss, we get a little bit of what we want, try and present it as a triumph, but ultimately it's not. Who's anyone kidding? And the pro each time the pro-European position on that will look a little bit more like siding with them and not being on the side of us. That dynamic itself is not culturally going to change very much. And I think the pool of people who think, but we are them and they is us and we want to be part of that. And so we should be glad that they're winning this negotiation and our government is losing is going to become a more marginal, not a more mainstream position over time. It depends if it's a total disaster, if Brexit ends up looking like I mean the analogy I've sometimes used in this is the Vietnam War, which is a bit unfortunate because yeah, hundreds of thousands of people died in that war. It's not a serious comparison in terms of policy error, but just as something that was a bad idea to start with. And then everyone carried on, just doubled down and just dug deeper and deeper into the bad idea. And it just became really hard to back out of it and to find a way to go. You know, we the only rational answer was we should never have got it this far into it, which isn't a practical policy solution. It's possible we'll get to that consensus through Brexit where we, go, we should never have done that. It was a stupid, bloody idea. Uh, and even then, there's it's not that easy to rejoin the European Union. That you, you, what do you do about the euro? By this stage, there'll be all sorts of levels of institutional integration that will make the the a relationship we had in 2014, 15 totally obsolete. It's not available. So it's hard, and that it pains me to say it. But for a generation, the issue here is how do we try for pro-Europeans? Is how do we? through diplomacy and good politics, get such a good working relationship with the EU that we negotiate a kind of super awesome outer tier alliance that is not in, but, and and because you're not, probably not going to get a political consensus for joining the Euro and the rest of it, is so strategically part of the European project that you get to rebuild some of that one of the big three thing that you had with France and Germany. You're a big European in an institutional framework that isn't membership of the European Union. I, that is, that's hard. Uh, and maybe it involves EEA and EFTA and other things. Uh, but I'd becoming a member of the EU again, I don't see happening, at least for a generation. Amicable marriage breakup where they become just best friends, purely platonic. Yeah, and it works better for the children in the end, that one, you know, because there's not so much arguing anymore. What's going to happen to all that Remainer or Remain energy? In terms of where does the energy go, there are two things to be said about this i'll really try and be brief i know i'm failing miserably in concision here one is that the kind of liberal center liberal pro-european remain position that actually includes a lot of moderate tories people people who voted for blair and cameron uh, and people that the kind of that classic center in and there are a lot of those in southern english constituencies i can see those people forming a, a bit of a new base for Keir Starmer that poses a bit of a problem for the Tories in some seats. And I can see it posing a problem for the Tories to the extent that it will give, might give a little bit of a Lib Dem revival in places like uh, Winchester, Romsey, Eastbourne, places where it's actually traditionally was a, a sort of blue on yellow 
contest where the, the main opposition to the Tories was the Lib Dems. And the reason the Tories have done well in a lot of those places in the last few years is because a lot of those moderate Tories, they didn't really like the direction the Conservative Party was taking, but they really, really didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. So ultimately, they, they really default. And actually, before that, they didn't want uh, Ed Miliband to be prime minister much either, but they really properly hated the idea of Jeremy Corbyn being prime minister. So if Keir Starmer carries on doing this quite cautious, and we can argue about the strategy, Starmer's strategy, that's a totally different podcast. But if Starmer carries on being vaguely sensible, moderate, and just playing this, look, I'm a competent, serious person who's not a clown and will just try and govern well thing, and as it were, decontaminates the Labour Party for those sorts of people, one of the effects of that is in places where Labour aren't really in the race, those people will feel much more comfortable voting Lib Dem because they won't actually be worried about the idea that by voting Lib Dem, they're allowing a Labour government. And that could cost the Tory seats in some of those sorts of places. That's a very cephalogical argument, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And then, but the, the much bigger one is, if we're talking about like what happens to Remain now, the answer is it goes to the Republic of Remain, which is Scotland, right? So you know, there's, there's Holyrood elections in May. Sturgeon, Nicholas Sturgeon is going to go full on on this. Now, you, you did this awful Brexit yeah, against the will of two thirds of the Scottish people, you've taken us out of our European Union. It's not fair, uh, and I think there will be a lot of people in the Remainers in England who will be looking to that and thinking, "I wish we had the piece of that. Why can't we be a bit more like that in our approach to this?" Now, that's actually a problem for Keir Starmer because he won't, for various reasons, and you know, wanting to appeal to Brexit voters in England, he won't want to emulate Sturgeon on that. But that she'll love that because that means she gets another stick with which to beat the Labour Party in Scotland. So, yeah, where does Remainer energy go? Goes to Scotland. One uh, quick final point on Brexit before we move on to another listener's question. As we know, lots of Labour supporters are also very strong, passionate, ardent Remainers. Ideologically so, um, it's become part of their identity. There'll be some cognitive dissonance with the strong belief around remaining and really wanting to vote Labour. Won't the Labour Party lose out with some of those um, Remainers unable to square those two contradictory beliefs without um, essentially moving their support away from the Labour Party? I'm not sure I agree with that. I think it, it might. there might be some cognitive dissonance involved. I think people who are that passionate Remainers might be angry with... Keir Starmer, but and some of them might find other places to go in terms of supporting the Lib Dems. It's a, big, it's a problem in Scotland. Every, caveat to everything: Scotland, Scotland, Scotland. Uh, but in England, ultimately, when it comes to a choice, if you are an ardent Remainer, the thing that fizzes in your veins as much as wanting Britain to still be a member of the European Union is a uh, acidic, uh, corrosive hatred of boris johnson and everything that he's done and the way he does politics and ultimately that is going to be a mobilizing force to put your hand uh, to the ballot paper in favor of a labor candidate uh, when it comes to an election so uh, i think those those people they'll they, they won't struggle to vote for keir starmer if the alternative is supporting boris johnson okay time running out here is our penultimate question from Yigao. And it starts as follows. Hi, Raphael. You are, no doubt, one of the English-speaking world's foremost political writers working today. Your devoted readers and listeners would no doubt be thrilled to hear you talk about writing, essays in particular. Surely this is no less fascinating than politics or psychology. Thank you so much for your work and best wishes for the new year. That's a great question. I love that question. Uh, let's just let's just 
let's just sit back for a moment and admire that question. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I don't accept. Well, I do accept the accolade because it'd be rude to reject it, but I, I don't think I deserve it. But anyway, um, oh, writing, it's hard actually to talk at length about that. But one thing that I think is worth mentioning earlier at the beginning of this year, as some people might know, I was very unwell and I had a, about a month, six weeks of pure convalescence where I did a lot of reading and the crucial thing that I like when I'm reading is I like to read good writing. And a person I constantly go back to who I'd really recommend is Clive James, uh, the late Clive James, uh, who is just such a brilliant writer. Uh, and he has a great phrase. He likes to turn a phrase until it catches the light, which is exactly the kind of phrase that does what he says and that I, I wish I could do. And I do sometimes before I'm going to write a column, when I remember to, I just read a page or a paragraph of what I think is really good writing to like in your head, listen to the kind of writing that you want to emulate so that you, you, you get the kind of tuning in. There's a book that I would really, really recommend my book of the year, even though it wasn't published this year, but it was a book of the year that I read book of tw last year, by the time you're listening to this podcast, book of 2020 for me that I read, not that was published is cultural amnesia by Clive James, which is a fat collection of essays all just based on important historical figures from the 20th century. And it's a huge tome, so I can't find the exact quote. In it. I'm looking at it now. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. But somewhere in there, he makes a point about the importance of, of clear writing as a sign of a thought has been adequately developed and also the importance that it can be transmitted to another person and how suspicious you can be of really arcane difficult to access writing and I feel this quite strongly sometimes with regard to academic writing and I have a lot of respect for a lot of academics but I'm not that tolerant of a school of academic writing that seems almost to be deliberately pushing a lay audience away and behaving like sort of pre-reformation monastery saying well we have other people who have the high latin and can interpret the scriptures as we choose and we will then pass that down to you the people and you don't get to read the scriptures uh, and particularly you've seen it in the pandemic right you've seen people really really good science writers who are able to articulate ferociously complicated things really really well and it confirms for me that there really aren't that many things known to humanity that a good writer can't communicate to a broadly intelligent, able reader. It's al almost always possible. I think at the upper limits of quantum mechanics and obviously some aspects of mathematics, you're just never going to be able to do it. You really need a lot of expertise. But almost 98, 99% of human knowledge can be clearly and well communicated to an engaged reader. So I don't claim to be in that league, but that is, for me, absolutely the aspiration all the time. Final question. Okay. And this is a really good one. Uh, I think you're going to like this one a lot, Raf. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to say, as you usually do at this juncture in the podcast, when we're about 90 95% of the way through, we'd like to end the podcast um, in a positive manner. So this one will give you an opportunity <laughs> to do that. And here is the question. It's from Mark. And he says, what's the one thing that we can do today to make our children and our grandchildren proud. Over to you. Wow, that's a tough question. Right, so I've got a, a macro and a micro answer to this, I think. I have to, oh, this is, this is difficult. Right, okay. So in terms of the big thing that we all have to do, and that I don't talk about enough, I don't write about it enough, I don't do enough on it. So absolute confession, 
my I'm just failing in every metric on this issue but it's the environment it's climate stuff I've, I've thought for a long time and I've never really articulated this in a column but I should do that when you engage with the history of the 20th century or philosophy that has emerged from the second half of the 20th century and politics one of the questions nearly always that I think thoughtful uh, self-aware people kind of ask themselves is would I have been one of the people in the you know in, in, a, in a fascist regime who resisted or who collaborated uh now it's, I, I get get out for this because being sort of jewish uh it, it i didn't really have an option theoretical me in 1936 germany is <laughs> like there was a choice of maybe i'll get along with this nazi stuff it sounds like a blast you know that wasn't really on the menu but that question of how do you know when you're going through something whether future generations will look back and go, how could you have gone along with that? You knew, you knew all about it and you said nothing and you did nothing and you really don't want to be that guy. And I think that's true, a lot of imperialism, a lot of colonial behavior. If you're an ambitious civil servant in the British Empire and you went out to India uh, to, to make a life for yourself, you know, how, at what stage is it okay to ask of all those people? Is it a reasonable thing to say, you should have known and you should not have been part of that? And I think the equivalent for our generation, and this is totally failing your optimism test, Phil, sorry about that, but the equivalent is very clearly going to be when people turn around and go, you knew all the evidence was there of what you were doing to the planet. And it was, had been there for years and you could not organize and you carried on and you did a little bit about plastic bags and you congratulated yourself for having a plug-in hybrid car. But ultimately, none of you did what was necessary. So that is, the, the answer is do way more on the environment. Make that absolutely the most important central thing of all your politics and the judgments you make with regard to that stuff. And I fail on that now the that's a macro answer and the micro answer is i think i'm you know I, I sometimes probably fall into the cliche of being a kind of liberal centrist and and all constantly extolling the virtues of nuance and moderation and i do sometimes worry that if you ignore or reject ideology too much then you lose the sort of momentum the energy that drives you to really demand and make change. There has to be room for radicalism and ideology in terms of pushing things forward. And the, the example I often use in regard, with regard to this is when I reject extremism of all kinds or radicalism, you think, well, you know, the suffragettes had to resort to smashing things up to get that job done. You know, or Nelson Mandela is the other classic example that people cite. The people who were perceived as terrorists in a certain environment who just had justice on their on their side. So you have to know when is the time to be extreme and radical. And it's not always easy. And I certainly have no idea and couldn't judge. But with that caveat aside, the importance of being, and this is a kind of philosophical point that I won't be able to develop at this late stage in the podcast, but I keep meaning to write about more of civility and politeness and being decent to other people in every single human interaction, I think is really underrated and underestimated as a moral virtue. So I think there is a sense, 
and you see it particularly at you know obviously online people behave towards each other appallingly but i think that has bled a little bit into our mainstream analog interactions there is this sense that if you feel something very passionately and urgently and it really matters to you that just being just not being a dick and being polite and reasonable in the way you interact with other people is a kind of luxury you can dispense with because it's much more important that you get your point across or it's much more urgent that you do your thing than you put up with these petty protocols and the the finery the decoration of social convention and i kind of disagree with that really profoundly i just think ultimately those it's like a if you think of like a, a coral reef as an ecosystem where yeah, the, the 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 structures of the politics of the reef itself, and then you've got all the kind of the fish and the seaweed and flora and fauna, the, the marine aquaculture that is around there. And you don't need the water temperature to go up that much before you start to bleach out all the coral, and then the fish start to die, and the the cycles of what feeds on what and what predates on what don't work anymore. And I just you lose all of the biodiversity and i think in a political culture you have this situation where if everyone's just getting a little bit more angry and heated and hostile and unpleasant to each other then the, the whole temperature just goes up a, a little bit and you start to lose the just the little bits of the ecosystem and then quite quickly the whole thing gets bleached out and i think that the little bits of civility and politeness and just being a decent human being and as i say there's just a cardinal rule of just not being a dick because most people kind of know what that involves. It's not a, an add-on or a secondary part of what constitutes a functioning democracy. I think it's really central to how you actually mediate the fact that you're going to have people in a society and the culture who want totally incompatible, mutually different things. And you need politics to mediate who's going to get what and where and how the resources are going to be allocated. So the sort of micro answer is just everyone be a bit nicer to each other and it might help a little bit. That is a facile way of answering that question, but that is, I believe that very strongly. So that, I'll, I'll stop there. I think that's a really nice answer and a really nice way to end the final podcast of 2020. Although I imagine that this will probably be the first podcast of 2021 rather than the last of 2020. Over to you, Raf, to help me wrap up. Thanks everyone for sending in awesome questions. And really sorry, we didn't, we only answered them a few of the questions and so that's cool because it means we've got more questions saved up for the next time we haven't got a guest and we want to do a podcast we can just do like another you can recycle the old questions is that allowed phil or do we have to get a whole new batch of questions if or if people hate this we won't do this again so we have all these options available to us uh thanks to all and everyone who's listened and sent really nice messages and tweeted and shared it well, we really appreciate it thank you to all our guests so many uh too many to mention now thank you raf for hosting it all and asking great questions and, well thank uh, you phil for inviting me to to host your podcast it's been a crazy year let's not get too sentimental about it thanks very much indeed see you in 2021 well talk to you in 2021
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.